Welcome to The Workplace Effect, your monthly podcast where we hope to help you turn your company into a community. We'll hear from different voices, different customers and different hosts every month, each adding their own insights and top tips from their field of expertise and experience to create a living manifesto that will grow with each listen. A little black book of insights for your ears to give you the ideas and tools you need to sculpt your company culture. Think of this as a handbook for your workplace. I'm Lisa Winstanley, Customer Advocacy Manager at Meta, and your host this month for the Workplace Effect podcast. Today I'll be speaking to the incomparable Bruce Daisley, the ex-VP for Twitter and author of the new book, Fortitude. I'll be speaking with him shortly. But first, what do we mean when we talk about work culture? Here at Meta and Workplace, it's a vital part of how we work. We're encouraged to have the opportunity to work with great people, tackle big challenges and make a real impact wherever we work, and all while being our unique, authentic selves. But it's possibly something that is hard to measure, We've heard the term toxic culture being bandied about. How do companies or individuals react or change this? Let's bring in an expert to talk about it a little more. So we're delighted to welcome a truly incredible and insightful guest onto the podcast today. Bruce Daisley is the XVP for Twitter and is the host of the business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and has a book of the same title. He's now a work culture expert and has also written other titles, including The Joy of Work and his new book, Fortitude. Hi, Bruce. How are you today? And where are you today? Hello. How are you doing? I've just returned from uh, a couple of weeks in Beirut, actually, but I'm back in London and I'm, I'm doing well. I'm thriving. Thank you. It's great to have you. Thank you for coming. Talk to me about what your experience is and where you've been working and what led you to where you are now. You know, I was always interested, I was obsessed with workplace culture, largely because I just loved the dynamic of one of the companies I worked at. And when I discovered that people who were doing parallel jobs in other organisations and they weren't having as good a time as I was, I thought, wow, this is just really intriguing. That was like my first job. But it was really intriguing that the leaders of the organisation that I was part of seemed to value some sort of strong sense of affiliation, some strong sense of bond amongst workers there. And so I've always had this curiosity whether workplace culture was an indulgence or whether it was a secret weapon, whether it was something that was a frivolous waste of time or whether it was something that created unique motivation. So I've always had that fascination. I found myself uh, working at a few tech firms. I worked at Google. I worked at Twitter. And I think along the way, I realized that quite often the, the, the unit of culture is quite often a team rather than a company. So it means that we've all got the capacity in some way to influence the, the workplace culture that we experience. Because even if that's just chatting to our direct manager or if we run a team ourselves, we can all have more impact in creating enjoyable workplace cultures than we possibly imagine. Wow. You write and talk so passionately about work culture. How would you explain what it is to our listeners? Because it isn't tangible, is it? 
That's right. I mean, it's this sort of will-o'-the-wisp. It's this often really difficult thing to articulate. So broadly, there's some suggestion from the research. So Gallup run the biggest workplace survey research. And they say that there's a really small number of people, an astonishingly small number of people who are actively engaged in their jobs. For the UK, they say that 8% of British workers are engaged in their jobs. Interestingly, it's it's about four times higher than that in the US. Um, but on continental Europe, it's lower. So in in, I think the lowest place in the world for workplace engagement is Italy right now. And I think they estimate that 3% of Italians are engaged in their jobs. So it's this sort of really astonishingly low number. I mean, to put the British number in context, they say these, I, th- I think about three times more people who are actively disengaged in their job than engaged in their job. So if you do witness a, a bus of people heading into the city centre, there's likely to be three times as many people heading there to try and bring down the downfall of their organisation than there is to create this remarkable remarkable success. And so, I, look, I just wanted to understand what that is. And, and what you find with workplace engagement, workplace culture, like you say, it's really difficult. It's an intangible thing to pin down. It's it's how much we're engaged with our job. It's how much we expend incremental effort. I guess, you know, we, we put a bit more effort into trying to do a good job. And, and tr- try and understand the components of that, I think, is a never-ending pursuit. You know, I find myself, I read about a book a week that I get sent on these things. I, I listen to stuff all the time and I, I feel like I understand about 10% of what there is to know. Why do you think then it is important to have a positive work culture? After what you've just said about so many people are actively going into work to bring it down, you know, so why is it important? I think, you know, let's work on the basis that full-time workers are spending 40 hours a week doing a job. Then if you're really doing it just whiling away time, effectively you're passing away your whole lifetime. You know, you're going you're gonna to be doing this for 40, 50 years. And if you're doing it with a reluctance, a sort of disdain, then it's a pretty miserable way to spend a lifetime. So trying to find some way where we get reward, happiness, satisfaction from our jobs is actually quite a noble pursuit. And look, we know that there's good evidence that people who have jobs are happier in life than people who don't have jobs. People who are unemployed often uh, have a, a lower sense of well-being. So we know that jobs can be a source of happiness for us. And yeah. that's not that we're gifting our life or we're gifting the best part of our consciousness to our employers. But the the idea that you do something and you feel some sense of satisfaction from it, in its raw sense, is quite noble. So I think understanding that, so that might be, of course, jobs that are imbued with a strong sense of purpose, teachers, firefighters, hospital workers, we can really see that. For the majority of us, we don't do jobs like that. But actually, if you look into even people who work in retail stores, if they feel that they're proud that they're doing a good job, it just gives them a greater sense of personal identity, a greater sense of satisfaction in the rest of their life. So look, you know, I think trying to create a positive, motivated workplace culture is is a noble cause, really. And, you know, trying to, to find the secret ingredients of that is quite an elusive challenge. Absolutely. And I think you've touched on this, but would you say that is it a tricky thing to measure? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it really is. You know, some of the things that help us understand it are they're, they're quite oblique. You know, it's not like you can always necessarily work out what the direct causes are. So if you knew that there were three causes of workplace culture and you could dial them up or down, then then firms might be presented with quite a simple choice. But it's never as straightforward as that. You know, this we don't fully know what are the three things that you would do to change it. One of the things we do know is the biggest predictor of whether you're engaged with your job is whether you've got a best friend at work. That's really interesting because if it's a bad workplace environment, then maybe that's your confidant, your ally, someone who's a friendly face in the in the crowd. If it's a good place, then it's just someone for you to you know, share moments of downtime with. But it's a really interesting indication. If you said to most business school supremos and you said to them, you know, how important is it to you that people have friends at work? That would probably be regarded as a, a bit of a distraction, <laughs> a bit of an unnecessary detail. But, you know, I think for most of us, if we recollect our favourite jobs, our favourite time of work, we probably do have these memories of feeling bonded with other people, these moments of feeling connected to other people. So it's a really interesting counterpoint to probably what our first instinct is about good workplace environments. That's really interesting, I must say. And you've made me think now back to my experiences. And yeah, there have been, I can remember the places where I have made friends and mm. I've enjoyed working there. And it's a really interesting consideration right now in an era of hybrid working. So what you find is that the vast majority of people used to report having a best friend at work. Now, if you look at hybrid workers, only 17% of hybrid workers say that they've got a best friend at work. Now, I don't think that that's a foregone conclusion, but it's an indication that we probably find it a little bit harder to form close friendship bonds. To some extent, work is moving from being a relationship in our life from something that it used to be like. And it used to be like the relationship we had at school, that you've got all these friends, it's quite collegiate, you, you, you feel this real strong sense of being seen and being understood by other people, to college, where for most people, if they went to university, they went to college, their best friends normally weren't the people on their course with them. You know, they, they would get on well with them, but they weren't the people who filled their weekends and their evenings. And I think we're moving to something closer to that with work. Now, that has a big impact on the way that we might think about our working environment. Because if you can create this sense where people have got a strong sense of affinity, connection, then possibly that's a way to elevate your work workplace culture to a slightly higher level to that of your competitors. Moving it on from what you've just said, which is really interesting, I was going to ask, can you tell me about you know work culture and how it's changed over the last few years? And do you think it's becoming more of a priority for businesses or even do you think it's becoming deprioritised for some businesses? Well, on Glassdoor, so Glassdoor is like, if people don't know, it's a review site where you can go and review your employer. And, you know, broadly, the way that you'd characterise the reviews on there, there's, there's a lot of people who are furiously flaming out an employer that they didn't like. And then there's, you know, there's a lot of people who celebrate great employers they had. So it's, you know, it's a polarising place. But on Glassdoor, typically, over time, people have said that workplace culture is more important to them than salary. So it's it's they recognise that actually if you're going to if you're working in an environment where you don't like the people you're working with, it's a pretty miserable way to spend time. 
So, so typically, over time, workplace culture has been more important. Look, and that shouldn't be an expensive salary. I don't think any of us should be forced to choose, I either like my colleagues or I earn a living wage. But it's an indication that we do value these things. I think what we've seen, as I said, about the, the plight of the hybrid worker, these things are proving a bit more tricky to create a good bonded, humour-filled, warm workplace culture is harder now than it was before. And so, you know, I think it will separate firms. What, what we've not really seen yet on Glassdoor is this big differentiation between some firms who are fully remote, some firms who've got a certain sort of hybrid working. And I think we're going to start seeing a really, a more stratified perspective of what good workplace culture looks like than we've ever seen before. So could you give me an example of a company who has a positive work culture? You know, what is it they're doing right? Well, look, you know, I think these things are taking very different shapes. What really is interesting is that if you survey companies, what you find is that quite often different teams within those companies can have different cultures. So to some extent, culture seems to live at, live at a team level rather than, than a, an organisation level. You know, you can survey an organisation, you can say, give me three words that characterises what it's like to work here. And you find massive inconsistencies between different offices, between different environments, between different floors in the building. So these things generally operate at a small level. And they're broadly about the direct management that you've got. They're broadly about the experience you've got, whether you're trusted, whether you're given respect, whether you feel that the environment you're in is setting out to create a good productive environment. So they normally exist at a team level. And so what we see there is that we see the things that are most important to people, feeling that they're trusted. People are very willing to be accountable, but they want to know what they're accountable for. They want to uh, have a strong sense that we're all in it together. So that's a, a really interesting one. People who've studied this have said that when there's a strong sense that we're all in it together, that the boss would do the jobs that they asked the team members to do, that there's no secrets that are unnecessary secrets. There's no gossiping that isn't inclusive. Those things seem to work well. Probably the biggest predictor of whether there's a good workplace culture is whether people feel their voice is listened to. So the importance of voice, affiliation, um, probably another thing that's critical is a sense of space, people feeling like they're not given more work than they can realistically handle. So these are a few components, you know, voice, space, affiliation, are probably the things that I would call out. And I guess flip that... The toxic work culture that you mentioned as part of, you know, people vent on Glassdoor. What are the companies doing wrong there, do you think? It's the same axes. So it's that same sense of voice. It's that same sense of affiliation. It's the same sense of space, but it's just inverted. So these people don't feel their voices listened to. And it's worth saying that that is the majority experience for most people in the workplace. If you ask people, they say, I have no impact on the decisions made in my team. I have no impact on the decisions made in my organisation. That sense of feeling out of control, the, the lack of impact is the predominant experience. With good cultures, we saw affiliation. Now we see I guess the opposite of that, people feeling that they don't have connections to the colleagues around them. They don't feel that they're all in it together. 
And the final one is space. You know, the, the feeling for the majority of people in the workplace is there's not enough hours to get things done. They, there's always a call that they feel that they should be dialed into, that they, they may be missing or that they've got more emails, more messages coming into them than they feel they can cope with. So the, the inversion of those things. And the last one, that absence of space, that's where real burnout lives right now. And it's worth calling out one of the reasons for that. In the last 15 years since email came to people's mobile phones, and I recognise there's probably people listening to this who maybe weren't in the workforce when email came to mobile phones, but we, we witnessed that the average working day went up two hours a day um, with that change. And that's a really fundamental change. The, the, the average working week went up, you know, to, by some accounts to 60, 70 hours a week from that change. And what we've also witnessed in the pandemic is the average working day has gone up by an additional 45 minutes a day. So we're definitely witnessing longer working hours than ever before. There's the absence of that space. There's the absence of that sense that there's slack in the system. And that's why people are feeling more burnt out than ever before. Wow, that's so interesting and completely agree. And in your experience, Bruce, what is the impact for companies and the employees if they do have a positive working culture and it is encouraged? Yeah, I mean, the biggest impact is that people feel that they're able to do their best possible work. Most people go to work hoping that they can have an impact. You know, most of us don't want to spend the day idling, but we want to get the sense that, okay, we can, we can make something happen today. Excellent. So how would you go about creating culture in the workplace? Yeah, I think, you know, it's an inclusive process. If you recognise that that sense that we're all in it together, that people feel need to feel that their voice is heard, then it's about demonstrating that. Sometimes that sense of voice is given a slightly jargony phrase. It's, it's referred to as psychological safety. And what you find is that organisations that really focus on giving their workers psychological safety. So let me articulate what that is. That's the, the sense that we're able to express our opinions without fear of consequence. So that might be that you're working in somewhere and, you know, deliveries are coming on the wrong time or, or maybe the way that you're interacting with customers feels like it's just creating a sense of constant overwhelm. You're doing everything from scratch every time. And having that candid discussion about how you can do things better seems to be one of the most important ways that people feel like, okay, we all know what's wrong here. Here's what we can solve. It's why quite often you hear about in business turnaround stories, the chief exec will go to the shop floor and say, what do we need to change? And then they do it. So, you know, I'll give you a candid example of this. I used to work in an environment where we had a really high quit rate. We had a lot of people who were exhausted, overwhelmed, burnt out. And the, one of the things we did is we started asking them, what's the reason why you're leaving? And one of the things we heard was that people said, there's just too many meetings. There's just too, I feel like I've got 40 hours of meetings before I do a single bit of work. And so we knew, okay, well, people were quitting and they were telling us why they were quitting. And unless we react to this, then they're going to carry on quitting. So we set about trying to reduce the amount of time spent in meetings. And let me tell you, it's not an easy thing to do that. But, you know, we thought, well, at the very least we can do is listen to that signal that people have given us. They've told us why they're quitting. Now it's our responsibility to, to maybe sort of see through the change that they're asking us to implement. So those things are never easy, 
whether it's the retail environment, whether it's the, the office environment, those things are never easy, but I think future workers will thank you for them. Really interesting. And less meetings, everyone will be pleased to hear that one. Absolutely. What are some simple everyday practices to improve how we all work together, which do you think will lead to greater team and individual happiness and performance? I know you've touched on a lot of that, but could you expand a little bit? Yeah, giving people space is probably the most important one because, you know, a sense of personal control is is one of the biggest predictors of well-being. So if you're opening your calendar on a Monday morning and you've got back-to-back meetings all week and you just you sort of breathlessly exclaim to your cat, well, <laughs> how am I meant to get my work done? You know, then almost certainly you'll be one of those people who's feeling, I, I've just got no way to have an impact here because, you know, the only way I can have an impact is working late into the night then I guess your experience of work is going to be one where you think I'm not being set up to succeed here. I'm not being set up to to do my best work. And so trying to find a way where you give people a bit more space in their in their calendar. What you, we've seen is there's some beautiful examples of this. Um, there was a really intriguing piece of work done that was published on the front of the Harvard Business Review about six months ago. 70 organisations committed to giving their workers one day a week with no meetings. Now, these were big organisations. It wasn't like, you know, it was a a local local pet shop. It wasn't like a a village hairdressers. These were organisations with over a thousand employees. So they were big organisations in companies around the world. And so they said, we're going to give workers a day without meetings. Let me be really clear what that meant. That meant there was going to be no scheduled meetings on those days. So you could still arrange to have a cup of tea with someone. You could still arrange to go for a walk around the block with someone. You could still arrange to create your own moments of connection but you're effectively being gifted the chance to do that yourself. And what they found was that engagement at those those places went up massively, productivity went up, and people's fondness for their job went up. So it's just an indication that often the way to make us like our job more is just to take stuff away from us. Now, I've worked in environments where you know, there was an attempt to improve culture. And so you were sent the opportunity to attend a seminar. You were sent the opportunity to, uh, to go to a lunchtime learning session. And that's from the evidence that seems to be one of the worst things that we could do. Giving people more to do seems to be just about the worst thing. The, the real way to do it is to give people fewer things that sit in their diary uh, before they, they start the working week. And can you tell me a little bit about your new book, Fortitude? So Fortitude, really, the the Financial Times did a review of it last week and they said it's for anyone who's been asked to attend a resilience training course or they've rolled their eyes when a a senior leader has mentioned the need to be more resilient. And I was just really intrigued in this phrase resilience that has just sprung up. It's just grown it's snowballed in popularity. And, you know, often we find ourselves being sent on resilience courses. And a few people told me while I was writing the book, they said, I've been sent on a resilience course and I don't feel any more resilient. And it's broadly to try and answer that. Why is it that, number one, this seems to be an attribute that we were finding in more demand. Secondly, we're finding it harder to access. And what are the the truths behind it? And so the book is part investigation. I found myself doing some detective work, trying to understand where these training courses about resilience came from and how we could understand them more completely. 
And secondly, uh, once I'd sort of found what was going wrong with the system, I then tried to understand what resilience really is. And spoiler, you know, broadly what you discover is the, the reason why we're so inspired by people who seem to pick themselves up and, and dust themselves off after natural disasters or people who like those inspiring people in Ukraine who are able to do things acts of heroism that we find ourselves slightly embarrassed to even contemplate what we would do in their situation. What you find is they're not built from other material, but they draw their strength, they draw their resilience, they they gather their fortitude from, it's the strength given to us by others. Yeah, It's the strength we draw from those around us. And I think it's just a really important distinction that when we're reminded that we are connected to these other people, when we're reminded that we have these bonds, it seems to embolden us. Very relevant for the world of work right now, because if we are working in athleisure gear from our homes and we are feeling like we don't have a best friend at work, then it could well be that it's a route to feeling less resilient in the long term. It's not predetermined, but probably the people who are going to thrive are the people who find a way either in their personal lives or through more careful curation in their workplace environments that would create this sense that we're all in it together. So I think it's a really critical moment for us right now. And actually understanding the components of this is probably the most important thing that any of us can do. Totally agree. So important. So we've been growing our workplace effect manifesto over the series. Tom Gibby encouraged us to use bots in the workplace. And last month, Jane Sparrow said we should do everything we can to make other people feel valued. So, Bruce, what would you like to add? Yeah, I think we should all lean into the idea. We should all cultivate the the notion that we're all in it together. I think good workplace cultures that will thrive in the future will have this sense of togetherness, this sense of bond. You know, and that might be that we all feel that we're all contributing in our own special way, but cultivating a sense that we're all in it together is one of the most powerful protective forces that any of us can nurture. That's brilliant advice and perfect for our manifesto. Bruce, we've absolutely loved having you on the Workplace Effect podcast today. And just to finish, is there anything you'd like to promote to the listeners? Uh, no, not at all, really. I mean, most of my stuff is free. So, you know, if you go to my website, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, you'll see most of the stuff there. And I do my own podcast. I do a sort of a, a newsletter on these things. I'm just fascinated and obsessed. So, you know, people get in touch with me all the time telling me this is what my workplace is trying to get. And I love hearing those stories. Excellent. Thank you, Bruce. And thanks so much for sharing all your insights today. They've been really invaluable. Truly my pleasure. Thank you. Lovely to chat to you, Lisa. We've just heard Bruce talking about his new book, Fortitude. And if you want to be in with a chance of winning a copy, sign up to our Workplace Pioneer Programme. Become one of our global community of forward-thinking business leaders. Click the link in our show notes to find out more. And thank you to you for listening to The Workplace Effect. And we will also be hearing from Donna Hansen from Flight Centre, one of our very valued customers as she shares their story of how they became one of the first workplace adopters in our success stories. 